0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Genesis chapter 50, right in there is where you're going to need to be. We're going to get there in two seconds, but I want to kind of preface you for where we are and where we're going today. So we are finishing a set of sermons through Genesis chapter 37 through 50. Th- those 14 chapters, has taken us nine weeks to kind of plow through all that. And this is the ninth and final week of that set of sermons. So we're finishing that up. And in light of that, I want to prep you for what's coming at the end of, of, this, set of or this sermon today. And so if you've been around here for very long, as we finish sets of sermons like this, um, we try to build in a little bit of time at the end of the last sermon to hear from our church family of what God's been kind of stirring up in you as we've dealt with Genesis 37 and this father that favors one's son and Joseph who is betrayed by his brothers, just all of this suffering that we see and the sovereignty of God over suffering, how, how God sometimes feels hidden, but as we've seen in this story, even when he feels hidden, he's not. He's not absent. His silence does not mean he's absent. And so we see how God is working in every detail of this story. The providence of God plays out. So so we're going to give you a second at the end of this sermon today, building in just a little bit of time today to hear from you in that. And so we'd love just to encourage you to be thinking about that. Like, What is it over the last several months here as we've been working through these chapters that God has been stirring up in you teaching you showing you through this section of the scriptures and so let me just remind you as you're thinking about that we're not looking for a theological debate we're not looking for another sermon this one will be plenty long enough already I promise you right and so we're just looking for a short concise summary of what God has has been up to lately in you through this particular set of sermons good so so get ready for that that's coming here in a few minutes So today I want to end by um, showing you two scenes at the end of this this story of of the life of Joseph, Genesis 37 through 50, that's going to kind of launch us into a huge biblical theme. Okay, so so here we go, Genesis chapter 49, actually. Last couple of verses, let me read this to you again, starting in verse 29. Starting in verse 29 of Genesis 49, we've got this. Then Jacob, he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to, uh, to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre. And then I want you to, sit, to maybe underline this phrase, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And he goes on to say that's where they buried Abraham and Sarah. So they buried Isaac and Rebekah. It's where I buried Leah, he is saying. Then in verse 32, the field and the cave that is in it were bought by the, from the Hittites. Verse 33, and when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And then at the end of Genesis chapter 50, you have Joseph dying. And you have something similar that he's going to say. In verse 24 of Genesis 50, Joseph says this to his brothers. I am about to die. This is verse 24 genesis 50 i'm about to die but god will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land we've got this idea of the land this land of canaan that he swore to abraham to isaac and to jacob then joseph made the sons of israel swear so just like jacob said you better swear to bury me back up in the land of canaan joseph is saying you better swear my brother's here. You better swear, saying God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So so when you leave, when, when God rescues you from this place and delivers you out of this place, that you carry my bones with you back to the land that he's gonna show you. So the question is, what is all this talk about land and the land of Canaan and carry up my bones back to where God's gonna take you? What, what, is, what is the Bible getting at in all this? Why are they so obsessed? Why is Jacob so obsessed about being buried back there? And why is Joseph so obsessed About them carrying his bones back there. Okay, so to answer that, I've got to just walk you through a little bit of of Old Testament theology, especially as it relates to land and this idea of the promised land. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, here's what we have happening God is preparing a place. This is what you have in the six days of creation. God is preparing a place for people. He creates Adam and Eve and puts them in that place. The Bible would call it a garden or paradise. So so God creates a place, he fashions a place, prepares a place, puts the people in that place. Adam and Eve gives them everything they need, everything they need for life. He has given them in that place, namely himself. That's what they need most in life. So he is dwelling and walking among them. But if you've read Genesis chapter 3, you know what happens, right? They eat the forbidden fruit. And in that moment of, of pride and rebellion, they lost the paradise and the place that God had created for them. Namely, himself. So they're cast out of paradise. Okay, now in Genesis 3.15, you've got the opening shot, the opening warning of what God is going to do. It's our first kind of glimpse of this redeemer that God is going to send that's going to restore the paradise that was just lost. This is Genesis 3.15. Then you get to Genesis chapter 12 and you've got this idea happening. God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise to Abraham. Do you remember what the, the central idea of this promise, what it was going to be? A land, a, a place. So this is God coming and saying, I'm promising that I'm going to restore what was lost. So he makes this promise to Abraham of land. If there's going to be a day, it's this land of Canaan, there's going to be a day where, where I'm going to gather you and the people of God and I'm going to dwell among them. And you remember how the, the, the land of promise, or this land promised to Abraham, how it's described in the Old Testament as a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you remember that? See, th- this is your picture of paradise. God is saying, I'm going to restore paradise for you that was lost in Adam and Eve's rebellion. That Then you start kind of moving forward, and that same promise that was given to Abraham for a place, for this land was also given to Abraham's son Isaac, and to Isaac's sons Jacob. And now to Jacob's sons. And so this is what you have happening at the end of this story. When Jacob is saying, you've got to make sure you bury me back there. It is this, it's him expressing this eager expectation of God coming through on his promise to restore paradise. To to recapture and renew and restore and redeem what was lost in Genesis chapter 3. So you've got the same thing that Joseph is saying. You better not leave my bones in Egypt. You better take them back to the land of Canaan, back to this land that was sworn to to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You better take my bones back there. He's expressing this eager expectation of God fulfilling his promise, and he wants to be there for it. This is what's happening. Okay, now let me just kind of make the turn and get to the final point point here. When you've got all of this talk and all of this buildup in the Old Testament around this land of promise— all of this buildup around this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, that is really just a dim shadow and a faint picture of a very big and bright New Testament reality called heaven. See, the promised land in the Old Testament, that all of this expectation and this eagerness and this anticipation is built around is really foreshadowing this land that God is preparing for his people, this place that God is preparing for his people, where he will gather all of his people together. He has promised to dwell and to live among them there forever. It's this place called heaven. That's what the Old Testament promised land is foreshadowing. That is what Joseph and Jacob are looking forward to with eager anticipation. So in light of that, here's what I want to do this last morning of this, of this set of sermons. I want to spend a morning trying to whet your appetite for what's to come. To, to, to hope that, that God in his grace might visit us in such a way that we would have a similar sort of expectation and anticipation of what's to come. That we would be living in light of this big reality that God is actually preparing a place for His sons and daughters called heaven, where He will dwell among them forever. That sort of anticipation, wetting our appetites for that. So, in light of that, I'm going to kind of run through five different questions that I hope will get us there this morning. Here's the first one. Question number one: What is heaven? What is heaven? What is this thing that we're supposed to look forward to? Now in the New Testament, there's several, when you see the word heaven, there's several different ways that that word could be used in the New Testament. And let me just run through three of the most prevalent. One way is to talk about the sky. So it would be a way of, um, this is like in Hebrews chapter 11, talking about Abraham and his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the heaven. It is like heaven's looking up and just seeing what's above us. A lot of times in the New Testament, that's what the word heaven is meaning, the sky or the space, the the galaxies, all that whole picture up there, the sky. But the the second most prevalent way it's used in, in the New Testament is this idea of the present heaven or paradise. It's to talk about the present heaven or paradise. It's to talk about the temporary place that sons and daughters of God go after they die and before Jesus returns. Paradise, th- this present heaven. So when, when you would make a comment right now, like when someone dies and you would say, well, the good news is they're in heaven. This is, this is what you're talking about. This is the present heaven, the place that the people of God go right now before or after they die, but before Jesus returns. Okay, now that is not purgatory. That is not like a place of purification. It is in the Bible called paradise. There's no second chance option here. Okay, so so it is this present heaven, this place that the New Testament would refer to as paradise. And let me just emphasize this, it's temporary. This is not the final home for the sons and daughters of God. Okay, now the third way it's used is what's generally, when you think about heaven, this is what we generally try to think of. This is the big picture. This is the most prevalent way the word heaven is used in the New Testament. To talk about the future heaven or the eternal dwelling place of God with his people. Okay, this is the big picture. This This is the primary way the word is used. Over 250 times in the New Testament, this is what it's talking about. When it uses the word heaven, 250 times in the New Testament, this is what it's referring to, right? So it's this idea, maybe you could think of it in like Revelation 21 and 22, this new heavens and a new earth. It is that picture of heaven, the place that you're gonna call home forever, the future heaven, the place where the presence of God and the people of God will forever live. This is the future heaven. This is, this is what we're talking about. So, so when I talk this morning about heaven, and we're trying to paint this picture, whet your appetite of what's to come, we're talking about this. The future home for all the sons and daughters of God where they will live with God forever in a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, so th- this is where we're going. So this is, that's the answer to the question, what is heaven? Here's the second question, is where is heaven? And I want to just throw this in quickly this morning because this is going to kind of introduce and kind of address a really common myth when it comes to heaven. Most people, when they think about heaven, they're thinking this, it's someplace up there. So maybe we all get one cloud up there. Maybe it's that sort of a thing where it's up there. But the picture in Revelation 21 and 22 is not a picture of heaven that is up there. It's a picture of heaven that is down here. Okay, now do you remember what happens in Revelation 21? It's this picture of the present heaven coming down and inhabiting a renewed and redeemed earth. See, in this way, heaven is earthy. It's not, if, if your picture of heaven is like the eternal home where the people of God and the presence of God will live forever, if your picture of that is it's somewhere up there, it's a wrong view of what heaven is. It should be pictured as like a place down here. Not like everyone on his cloud, but everyone on his renewed piece of real estate. Okay, this is the view of heaven. It's earthy. Are you seeing that? It's here, it's earthy. A new heavens and a new earth. Okay, now number three is the one I want to spend some time on this morning. Is what will heaven be like? i want to try to just whet your appetite with some of what the Bible says about what will heaven be like. Now, let me just ask you the question. When you think about the word heaven, what comes into your mind? What comes into your mind? And and here's what I've found with most Christians. That the words and the thoughts that come into our mind— are small and boring, small and boring, that we don't have big, massive, biblical thoughts about what's to come. It's not a captivating and compelling picture. I I love how one author described this. This is how he described the boring and small thoughts of most Christians. He said, nearly every Christian I've spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We've settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky. That's more like hell to me. I'm just going to be honest with you. (laughs) Okay. We've settled on an image of this never-ending sing-along in the sky. One great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks forever and ever. That's it. That's the good news. And then we sigh and feel guilty that we're not more spiritual. We lose heart, and listen to this, and we turn once more to the present, to this life, to find what life we can. See, that's the effects of not having big biblical thoughts about heaven. And listen, it is, it is, that's a terrible thing to to not think in terms of all that God has promised and all that God has presented to us in in terms of what heaven will be. That heaven's not going to be boring. It's impossible for heaven to be boring. Okay, now listen to, to this. I, I, I love these two verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. They're going to be up on the screen for you. And I, just want, I want you to allow these verses just to settle over your soul for a second this morning. This is Paul speaking on behalf of God saying this, but as it is written, talking about heaven, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now tell me this, is that small? Does that sound boring to you? See, if your idea of heaven is boring, it just betrays that you think God is boring. And listen, this is the same God in this passage saying that what I've created, what I'm preparing for you, this place, this is the same God that is saying, that, that has created the Grand Canyon, that created the Alps, that created your taste buds, that created the great flavor of a steak, the view of a sunset. It is that God who is saying, what I've prepared for you here, you can't imagine it. Now just think about that for a second. The same God that spoke in the Grand Canyon exists is saying, you can't imagine what I've got coming for you now. You you cannot imagine it. But I love what verse 10 says on the other side of this. Verse 10 comes along and says, you you can't imagine it, What, what God's prepared for those who love him, but verse 10 says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So in the grace of God, God doesn't leave us with just this picture of you can't imagine it, so don't even try. That's not what he does in the Scriptures. He says, you can't imagine it in the Scriptures, but then he says, but let me give you a taste of it. Let me give you a place to start in your imagination. And I want to walk you through six or seven descriptions of heaven that we have in the Bible. Just six or seven things to wet our taste buds as what's to come. As to what we can look forward to down the road. So let me give you a couple of these. The first one is heaven is pictured as a city. This is Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10, Hebrews 13, 14, Revelation 21 verse 2. It's it's pictured as a city. So when we're thinking about a city, we don't have to wonder what a city is. You know what a city is. And think about all the things that a city is made up of. A city has culture. A city has arts. A city has recreation and sports, you know, activities. A city has all of those things. See, this is the starting point. When God is saying, you can't imagine it, but he's given us these starting points to begin imagining it from. And he's saying, if you want one, imagine a city. This is a place to start. If you want to go down to downtown Fort Worth and just look around and imagine what downtown Fort Worth could be like without the curse of sin over it. That's a place to start. It's a city, the Bible says. Secondly, it says that that heaven's pictured as a country. So it's not just a city, but as a country. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16. It's also implied in uh, Philippians 3, 20 that our citizenship is in heaven. And and we know about countries. Countries are are like territories. They have territories. They have rulers over them. You've got all of that. People have this national identity, right? A country is diversified. And I love this picture of Revelation 7 where heaven's gonna be made up of every tongue, nation, and tribe. You remember that? that? That heaven's not gonna be primarily white, not going to be primarily black. It's going to have every nation, tongue, and tribe there. It's going to be diversified, but yet unified. So this, this is the picture of heaven. It's giving us this starting place just to imagine what it could be. Thirdly, heaven's pictured with resurrection bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 40 through 44. With resurrection bodies. That is good news for a lot of us that are on the back end of a good looking body, aren't we? That is, that is great news for a lot of us in the room. That the Bible is promising you a remade, renewed, perfect resurrection body. No knee problems. No health problems. No mental problems. I mean, we could go down the list here, couldn't we? A perfect body. This is what, this is what the Bible is holding out in front of us. See, we've got this place to start. That he's given us body as a place to start, but we've got all of this room for imagination because it's saying it's going to be a new body and a redeemed body. Something that you've never, you couldn't imagine what it's going to be like. I love what Jonathan Edwards, the old uh, um, Puritan pastor, when he's kind of thinking about this, he says, you know, like right now, we have five senses to take in all that, that we kind of experience around us. We have these five senses. And can you imagine in heaven maybe having a thousand senses Can you imagine that? See, it just gives us all this room to imagine what a new resurrected body might be like. So we've got this picture of a city, of a country, of these resurrection bodies. Fourthly, we've got this picture as, uh, heaven pictured as perfect rest. This is Hebrews chapter four, verse 10 and 11. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. Just take a deep breath for a second. Just a deep breath. Can you imagine what life would be like not hurried. Like, not the next thing to get to and the next thing to do. Like, I'm, I'm thinking right now, if like, I've got a mound of stuff that I'm thinking about that has to be done, like, over the next two weeks. You know what I'm saying? That just, it's one thing, and can you just imagine what it would be like to be in perfect rest? Not rushed, not hurried, in perfect peace. That little longing that you have down inside of you for that, that, that's, that longing is meant to take you to heaven, to get you to heaven. A perfect rest. Fifthly, heaven is pictured as perfect work. This is Revelation 22, 3, where we're pictured as servants of Christ. Luke 19, uh, pictured as ruling. So, so can you imagine what work would be like? And, and by the way, th- this goes back to the idea of city. When you go to a city, you, you see goods and services, people working. So, so work isn't something you're going to get away from. But can you imagine what work would be like outside of and apart from the curse of thorns and thistles that make it really difficult? Can you imagine that? How, how great work would be without thorns and thistles, without difficult people, without all of that kind of muddying up work and making it hard? See, this is what we had to look forward to, a perfect work without the thorns and thistles. And lastly, or well, sixthly, Heaven's pictured as a new earth. This is Revelation 21. Let me just read this passage again to you one more time. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write these down, for these words are faithful and true. I want you to see here that that what the Bible is holding out before us is it's asking us to think about heaven. This picture of heaven is not of a non-earth. It's of a new earth. That's a big difference. The, the picture that, that John is giving us at the end of Revelation, he is giving us a picture of an earth that is renewed, redeemed from the curse, restored to that original Genesis 1 and 2 thing, paradise that God has made it. This is the starting point of heaven. Now, I think it's interesting in Revelation 21 and 22, when John's unfolding this view of of the future heaven, this eternal dwelling place of God and man, I want you to to hear some of the descriptors he uses in that. He uses people, people are going to be there, mountains, trees, water, houses, cities, buildings, streets, all of them mentioned. Do you see how earthy that is? It's a renewed earth, a perfect earth with no sin. Out from under the curse. I mean, it's you looking around and thinking, what could life be like apart from sin in this world? This is is a starting place for us when we're thinking about heaven. I love what Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, how he mentions this idea of the new heavens and the new earth. Here's what he says. The biblical doctrine of the new earth implies something startling that if we want to know what the ultimate heaven, our eternal home, will be like, the best place to start is by looking around us. So he says this, So look out a window, take a walk, talk with your friends, use your God-given skills to paint or draw or build a shed or write a book, but imagine it, all of it, in its original condition. The happy dog with the wagging tail, not the snarling beast, beaten and starved. The flowers unwilted, the grass undying, the blue sky without pollution. Imagine people smiling and joyful, not angry and depressed and empty. If you're not in a particularly beautiful place, not, not judging Midlothian, but if you're not in a particularly beautiful place, Close your eyes and envision the most beautiful place you've ever seen, complete with palm trees, raging rivers, jagged mountains, waterfalls, or snow drifts. Think of friends or family members who love Jesus and are now with him. Picture them with you walking together in this place. All of you have powerful bodies, stronger than an Olympic athlete. You are laughing, playing, talking, and reminiscing. You reach up to a tree to pick an apple or an orange and you bite it. It's so sweet that it's startling. You've never tasted anything so good. Now you see someone coming toward you. It's Jesus with a big smile on his face. You fall to your knees in worship. At last, you're with the person you were made for and the place you were made to be. See, if you want this starting point, He's saying, just look around and imagine what life could be apart from sin and the curse. This is our starting point to imagine it. So we've got this idea of a new heavens and a new earth. Let me give you one more picture of heaven. Number seven. That heaven's pictured as the dwelling place of God. As the place where God dwells. Listen, do you know what makes heaven heaven? Heaven. It's not no more sin. It's not no more suffering. It's not that we'll have great reunions. What makes heaven heaven is God will be there. That's what makes heaven heaven. Now I want to read to you one more quote by a guy named Wayne Grudem. In his systematic theology book, I want you to listen to what he says here. In light of Revelation 21.3, you remember this? 21.3, where he's saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. See, this is what we can expect That for God to dwell with us forever in a place, an an earthy place, a renewed earth. Here's what Wayne Grudem says. But more important than all the physical beauty of the heavenly city, more important than the fellowship we will enjoy with God's people from all the nations and all periods in history, More important than reigning over God's kingdom, more important by far than any of these will be the fact that we will be in the presence of God and enjoying unhindered fellowship with him. Our greatest joy will be in seeing the Lord himself and in being with him forever. When John speaks of the blessing of the heavenly city, the culmination of those blessings come in the short statement, they shall see his face, Revelation 22, 4. When we look into the face of the Lord, we will see in him the fulfillment of everything we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longing we have ever had to know perfect love, perfect peace, perfect joy, and to know truth and justice, holiness and wisdom, goodness and power and glory and beauty. As we gaze into the face of our Lord, we will know more fully than ever before That in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. What makes heaven heaven is God's presence. Amen? Number four. Fourth question. What are we to do in regards to heaven? So in light of this incredible place that the Bible is saying God is promising to blow our minds with, in light of that, what are we to do with heaven? Like right now, presently, in, in this moment, this week, what are we to do? I want to let Colossians chapter 3 answer this question for us. Colossians 3 verse 1 says this. It'll be on the screen for you. If you have been raised with Christ, in other words, if you're a Christian, if God has redeemed you and rescued you, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If you want to know what we're called to do now in regards to heaven, here it is. To set our minds on it. That's what you're called to do. To fix your minds on it. To, to keep in front of you the reality that there is a place coming that is going to blow your mind. I, that word to set your minds, that, that word is the same word used in Luke chapter 15 with the widow or the, the woman that lost her coin. Do you remember that story? That the widow's lost her coin and it says that she is searching and seeking diligently to find it. It's that same word. And this is, the, this is the picture that the Bible is telling us, that like a woman who has lost a valuable coin is turning her house upside down to find it, to, to set her hands on it. We are to have that same sort of mindset with heaven. We're to seek it like that. Like it's the most valuable thing on the planet. Like we're to seek it. We're to, we're to run after it. We're to make it a priority. We're to remember it like that. And, and this, this verb in, uh, in Colossians chapter, one, or chapter three, verses one and two, that, that verb to set our minds on it, to, to seek after it, that's a present verb. So in other words, it's saying that this is a continuous action. It's not like a spasm of activity. It's not like a, I just heard a sermon on it, so today I'm going to think about it. It's a lifelong pursuit. It's saying like starting now and for the rest of your life, keep your mind on heaven. Set your mind on it. Keep it in front of you. Remember it. Recall it. Like, make sure your soul is acquainted with it. This is the call that we all have on our life. This is a command by God to set our affections, to set our mind, to seek the things that are above. Namely, heaven. And in light of us living there forever, like, okay, like if you're a Christian, forever forever. That's where where we're going. God, heaven, place, you and I forever. Now, in light of that being true, wouldn't it make sense to get your soul acquainted with it? I mean, wouldn't that be a logical conclusion? I love what the old Puritan J.C. Ryle, listen to how he addresses this. Just this logical conclusion that if, if we're going there, it'd probably do us good to think about that. So this is what he says. The man who is about to sell for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home. Its climate, its employment, its inhabitants, its ways, its customs. All these subjects are of deep interest to him. You are leaving the land of your nativity and you're going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if we did not desire information about about your new abode. Now surely if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it before we go to our eternal home. We should try to become acquainted with it. Now, I'm reading that. I'm thinking, yes, that is exactly what Colossians 3 is telling us to do, to set our minds on our new home and and become acquainted with it, to recalibrate our souls around what's to come for us. So can I just ask you the question? Are you doing that? Like right now, is your soul calibrated around heaven? I mean, this idea of setting your mind, seeking heaven, is that you? Let me just ask you a few questions to maybe kind of drill into that and, and you can kind of lay over your life in regards to it. Number one, do I reflect on my own mortality? If you, you don't know what it means and what it looks like to set your mind on heaven, it, it would mean this. You're answering yes to this question. Am I thinking about my own mortality? I mean, you know we all have a death sentence, right? You know that. We just don't know when it's happening. But we've all got that. And it would do us all well to remember that, right? Right? Secondly, what does it look like to set your mind on heaven? Do I daily realize that there are two destinations, heaven or hell, and that I and every person I know will go to one or the other? You thinking about that constantly? Getting that on the forefront of your mind? This is what it would mean to set your mind on heaven. Thirdly, do I daily remind myself that I am a pilgrim on my way to the promised land of heaven? Do you know that we all, I mean, generally speaking in this room, think and act as if this world is all we've got? That that across this room, one of our problems is we habitually think and act as if this world is all there is. And it's not. And Colossians chapter 3 is a reminder that we are called to fight against that fleshly tendency and to remember that there is something better to come. Number four. Do I daily recognize that my choices and actions have a direct influence on the world to come? That how you live now can create more capacity to experience more joy later. How you live now has the potential to create more joy later. I love what Jonathan Edwards when he was in his 20s, started writing these resolutions for his life and in light of this ability to how you live now actually affects forever. He said, resolve to endeavor, to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. And what would it look like for you to endeavor to to gain as much happiness in heaven as you possibly could? What would that look like for you? This this is Matthew 21, or Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, where Jesus is saying, you need to store up treasures in heaven. Not this world. You need to store them up there where you'll get to enjoy them forever. Number five, do I daily realize that my life is being examined by God, the audience of one, and that the only appraisal of my life that will ultimately matter is His? Are we doing that? Just in our normal life, just reminding ourselves, That the one who we ultimately want to be pleasing before is Jesus. Listen, can I just tell you the only way you can keep from wasting your life, this is the only way you're not going to waste your life, is to be living for those things now that will mean most to you then when you're before Jesus. That is the only way for you not to waste it. If you're living for anything else, it's a wasted life. The only way not to waste it is for you to live for those things now that will mean most to you then when you're before him. And number six, do I daily reflect on the fact that my ultimate home will be the new earth? Well, I will see God and serve him as a resurrected being, as a resurrected human society. Well, I will overflow with joy and delight in drawing nearer to God by studying him and his creation and where I will exercise to God's glory, dominion over his creation. Do you daily think about where your future home is going to be? See, this is how we set our minds on heaven. Okay, and lastly, and then we're going to open it up. I want to just address really quickly why we're called to set our minds on heaven. Like, why is this so important for you and I to do? And and I want to loop in the answer to this question and just tie this into this big theme of suffering that we've been in the middle of as we've worked through the life of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. So so how does it help us in the midst of suffering? I want you to think about the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, John is, is talking to and writing to a group of Christians that are suffering greatly. Okay, if you read Revelation 2 and 3, you get the picture of that, that they are suffering greatly, and they are about to suffer even more. So at the end of the first century, uh, an emperor... Uh, came into power in Rome who really sanctioned the first widespread and robust persecution of Christians just because they're Christians. So now you've got houses being plundered just because they're Christians. You've got people being killed, some being run into the the arena where lines are being released as the cheers, uh, you know, the crowd cheers. You've got that whole thing happening. You've got Christians who are covered in tar and lit uh, lit on fire you've got this whole thing happen or happening kind of flowing right out of the book of revelation and the question becomes what is john giving them to help them what is the resource he's pointing them to and do you know what he's pointing them to revelation 21 and 22 heaven like he's saying, that if you want a resource that will help you endure suffering well, that resource, if you want to know what that is, it is thinking about what God has prepared for his sons and daughters. That's the resource. So he unpacks in Revelation 21 and 22 this beautiful picture of heaven. And you know what history proves to us? That it actually worked. You've got all these stories um, in, the, in the early church. Well, Hebrews 11, as an illustration of this, of, of the people of, of, of God, their, their houses are being plundered, and it says they receive that joyfully. You've got the people of God suffering with such peace and poise. There are these stories about Christians being released into these arenas with lions and them singing hymns as the lions are running after them. So you've got these Christians suffering with great poise and peace. Why? Because their hearts are not here. They're in heaven. That's why. That's the resource. And if we want to suffer well, if we want to live those sort of great lives, if we want to suffer with that sort of peace and poise, here's the resource for you and I. It's called heaven, a redeemed earth where you, me, we dwell with God forever. Amen? That's the resource. Okay, so we're going to push pause here and we're going to give just a few minutes um, to kind of close out today, um, allowing just over the last, we've been in here for for nine weeks now, so almost two and a half months, and uh, anything over the last couple of weeks or a couple of months that God has really been impressing upon you, showing you, teaching you. And so, and again, let me just reemphasize that we're looking just for short, concise statements of that. You don't have to give a whole sermon, just short, concise statements of, of what God has been up to in you over the last couple of months. And this first one is the key, right? So don't leave me hanging too long here. And we've got a couple of mics. They'll, they'll come to you. Yep, here we go. Mr. Keter. Hey, Rod. Thanks for, um,
1: thanks for this series of sermons. Um, in, in my mind, really, the, um, the really impactful crown jewel was last week's sermon when you talked about um, God's view of forgiveness. Mm. And... It seems that oftentimes when you see folks that are suffering or are held back or are not reaching their potential, it's because that there's something there in their lives that they're not, not letting go of or not using God's view of forgiveness. And if you think maybe the story of Joseph, it may have ended when he got thrown in the pit and yeah. the story just ended there. Yeah.
0: had we not
1: had that view of God's forgiveness?
0: For sure. Thanks so much, Kendall. Sure. And isn't the story of Joseph such a great pointer to Jesus, who on the cross is our ultimate expression of forgiveness, right? Who else? Yes, right over here. There we go. And if you... (laughs) You've got one of those voices, don't you? And if you're on this side, feel free to get uh, Jordan's attention, and he'll get get a mic to you. Well, I was just thinking that whenever we look at stuff... It's all about me. That's where Joseph differs from us. Is Joseph, it wasn't about him. He was looking at the bigger picture. It's about God. And for us, if we would look at it more about, it's not about me and how someone has affected me. Because a lot of times when they say something or do something, the first thing we do is how did it affect me? And they didn't even mean it that way. We just just take it, turn it around to how did it affect me. We mean to be like that is... It's about what is God's picture, not, not me. For sure. That's right. That's that view of providence where God is always working that big picture perspective over every detail. Thanks for sharing that. Who else? Yes, sir. Right here, Kevin. Oh, and we've also got one.
1: Yeah. Uh, I just want to say uh, you're doing a good job. Keep up the good work. God is using you. Uh, what I like is uh, what Joseph, no matter what he went through, he continued to obey God.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's
1: what uh, I try to do on a daily basis that we all should try to do. No matter what we go through, still focus on, sometimes it's going to hurt, but still yeah. obey God.
0: Yeah, no doubt, man. One of the things that has impressed me more than anything else kind of in this story is how so often we use suffering as an excuse to sin. Where Joseph didn't do that. He used it as an excuse to obey, right? And so I, I love that. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that.
1: Rodney, this has been my most favorite series. And the one message that stuck with me the most was the one on God's providence. Yeah. And um, Christmas is extra special because 16 years ago, my husband that was 39 died and went to heaven the day after Christmas And at that point, as a mother with two young sons, what you think about, you grieve for yourself, but you also grieve for your children. And I remember someone asking me, do you feel alone? Because I don't want you to feel alone. And I thought, oh, I don't. I have never felt alone. God was so close to me during that time. And in chapter 39 of Genesis, it talks about, you talked about when the Lord was with Joseph, it was a covenant companionship. And how he showed him steadfast love. He was ever faithful, lavish, rent, relentless, constantly pursuing. And that's what I experienced. Mm. And I see it so much more clearly now, 16 years later, as I look back and I see God's providence. And the plan that he had for my life and my children's life as they have grown up. And the plan that he still has for them. Mm. And the, thing, it, the whole series just made me more thankful and how, when we can go through terrible things, it's really difficult while you're in it, and it's really difficult to look ahead. But it is so worth it when you know that you are in God's plan and He is going to take care of you no matter what.
0: Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Jordan right there in the back too. Uh, I just wanted to share um, just the idea of God being with Joseph um, I think is probably the the biggest thing to me was just understanding that it doesn't matter if you're in good times or bad times that God's always right there with you mm-hmm. and he's always going to be there to, to give you advice. Um, and I, I think that's got to give us hope that God's sovereign um, especially this week with everything that happened in Connecticut. Just gives me a new sense and a new vision of God is in control and that he is sovereign and that there is hope to be found in that because Mm. I think there's going to be plenty of people that don't find hope in that Mm. Um, and it's 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 nice to know that we don't have to have the answers um, and that we don't have to um, know what God's plan is yet but that he will reveal it to us and that he's in control of that so yeah thanks that
1: Um, I think on this series for me, I just learned that um, in suffering, it's just another extension of God's love and um, and His grace in our in our life, and that it may be so hard to uh, to see that in the moment, but that it's just Him being so good and gracious and loving um, to walk with us through that. Um, so I just feel like it's just his, another extension of His love towards me.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Miss Katie. Any others? we got time for maybe one or two more. So, Yes, front row right here. Jordan.
1: Um, I know for me, like, the story of Joseph just taught me a lot about family and just how you can react to circumstances in your life with your family and just seeing how Joseph... Instead of being bitter by things that really were painful, he chose to let God work in his life. Mm -hmm. And um, the way he reacted to his family as a result of that worked in their lives. And so that was just um, very poignant over the last few months.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Chrissy. Got right over here.
1: Joseph, uh, put in prison wrongly, but did he look at it as a prison or did he look at it as a classroom? Did he look at the providence that God had over his life Mm -hmm. to see where God was trying to move him and change his character and his integrity in his life? No doubt. I think when we go through sufferings, God's trying to teach all of us those things.
0: For sure. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. Any more? Okay, let me, let me close with this today. <clears throat> have there ever been those moments in your life, and, and for all of us, I think there's a few of these, where you have, I mean, just, it, it feels like the comments have just aligned, right? Where everything is just perfect, and you have like this, this thing in your heart that just starts to explode, and, and this thing like comes out of your mouth where you would say a, a comment like this. It can't get any better than this. Have you ever had that moment? Where, where that's, I and mean, maybe you didn't even vocalize it, but you just felt that. Where, where there's just this, this overwhelming sense of, man, this is great. It can't get better than this. Well, here's the truth that the Bible would tell you and I, is that that's not true. It actually can get better than this. Like the truth of the Bible is that your most ordinary moments in heaven on a renewed and redeemed earth are far greater than the best moments now. I love what Randy Alcorn says, and I'll I'll finish with this. He says, Life on the new earth will be like sitting in front of the fire with family and friends, basking in the warmth, laughing loudly, dreaming of the adventures to come and then going out and living those adventures together. With no fear that life will ever end or that tragedy will descend like a dark cloud. With no fear that dreams will be shattered or relationships broken, Jesus will be there and joy will be the air we breathe. And just when we think it can't get any better than this, it will. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.